We are in the last week of a five-week series on Romans Part 3, Romans 9 through 11. And I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been challenging and awesome and confusing and great all at the same time. Uh, And so this is the final week of that. And Paul has been spending the better part of three chapters uh, describing his heart and, more importantly, God's heart for his people, particularly the people of Israel. And while they stumbled over Jesus Christ, as we saw back in chapter 9, God is still longing for the nation of Israel, his people, to be united with Christ, that they would believe in the Messiah, that both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, everybody would come underneath God's grace and be saved, all a part of the same tree, if you were here last week, like Pastor Mark talked about. But the question Paul's going to deal with in our text this morning is, how will the Gentiles respond if the Jews come back? How will the Gentiles respond to those people that perhaps even persecuted them or hated them or viewed them as less than? How would they respond now that they kind of have the seat of uh, privilege, so to speak, while the Jews are coming back? It reminds me of the end of the Civil War. Uh, If you're a Civil War buff or you feel like your Civil War hero, Uh, stuff, your Civil War stories. Uh, I remember just hearing this story about Robert E. Lee when he signed the the surrender papers and President Abraham Lincoln uh, got onto the balcony of the White House and began speaking to this large crowd to announce that the Union had won, that the South had surrendered. And at the end of President Lincoln's speech, there was a senator named James Harlan who spoke up. He stood up and asked the crowd and he said, what shall we do with the rebels? That's what he said to this crowd, and the crowd all vindictively shouted back to Senator Harmon, we should hang them, hang the Rebs, right? That's what the union said. And Abraham Lincoln's youngest son named Tad, he was 11 years old at the time, looked at this and was troubled by it, and he pulled on his dad's coat and said, no, Papa, no, not hang them, hang on to them. Out of the mouths of 11-year-olds, right? So Abraham Lincoln looked at his son. He's like, that's it. That's it, son. We must hang on to them. But you see, we all have this tendency to view others who have rejected us or maybe others who have sinned against us or maybe others who we view as like unworthy to be saved. Well, God shouldn't save them and show them the same mercy that he's shown me. And that was particularly true in this Jew-Gentile relationship that was full of tension in Romans 9 through 11. Many Gentiles perhaps had said, the Jews had their shot. They rejected Jesus. Let's move on. We don't need them. We'll just start our own church. And Paul is like, no, 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 no. God still loves his people. He still wants the Jews. He wants them back into the fold with all of us. And that's the beauty and the glory of God's plan. And so Paul continues his thought in verse 25 of the word of God, and begins imploring specifically Gentiles like us. And he says this, I do not want you to be so ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call 
are irrevocable. Let's stop there. Israel's mysterious hardening is what Paul is describing. Why has Israel rejected Christ? And Paul says, in some sense, it's because God is allowing more and more people to come into his family, that he wants to extend his mercy to more. And perhaps the only way to do that was to allow the Israelites to harden themselves so that God could welcome the Gentiles. But God has not forgotten his people. They are not beyond recovery, as Paul, as Paul wrote back in chapter 11, verse 11. And if you still have breath in your lungs, you are not beyond recovery of God's mercy. God has not forgotten his promises. He has not forgotten the patriarchs. And Paul says this powerful statement in verse 26 when he says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? What does that mean that all Israel will be saved? Does that mean that all Israelites go to heaven? That all those who are ethnically Jewish are saved? Well, no, we know it can't mean that because back in chapter 9, Paul says in verse 6 that not all who descended from Israel are truly Israel. It's not about your ethnicity, but about God's promise. What it means instead is all of God's promised people, all those who he has chosen, all of those who have trusted in him will be saved including Paul and many first-century Messianic Jews. And even now, as it appears that most of Israel has rejected Jesus, it will not always be so. That there will be some Jews who will come back and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul quotes two verses in verses 26 and 27. Anytime in your Bible that it kind of gives a little like tab in, it's because it's quoting another verse from Scripture. And he's quoting from Isaiah 59 and 27, both of which describe Israel coming back to the Lord, repenting of their sin and trusting in God. Why does that matter? It means that Paul is saying here that Israel is, is saved the same way that everyone else is saved, the same way that you and I are saved, by turning from their sins and by calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. There are not two different modes of salvation, like the Gentiles get saved through Jesus on the cross, the Jews get saved this other way. No, it's always been by grace, and it's always been by faith, and it will always be by faith. Now, that begs the question then, why did God do it this way? Why did God harden the Israelites? Why did he, make, why did he allow them to reject him? Why did he do that? Why did, why did God do all this? It's mysterious. It's kind of confusing. What does this reveal to us about the character of God? That's a great question, by the way, to ask yourself anytime you're reading the Bible, is to ask, what is this showing me about God's character? What is this showing me about who God is? And Paul describes God's character and the reason in verse 30 to 32, listen. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now became, uh, become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them. Now, I read those three verses and the same word was used four times. Did you catch it? What was it? Mercy. Mercy. The reason why this is happening is because God delights in showing mercy. God delights. He loves to show mercy to people. 
That is really good news. God didn't hold your sin or my sin against us, but Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us. Look at this merciful statement, that while we were still sinners, not coming after him, not crying out for him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy, not giving us what we deserved. God's heart does not change towards Israel either. Even though they are now sinners on the outside, disobedient and acting as enemies of the cross, he is still wanting to, to display his mercy towards them. Oh, aren't you glad that God is a God of mercy? Can I get an amen? Are you glad about that? I hope you are. The prophet Micah summarizes it well. Great name, by the way. My third son is named Micah. He's waving at me right now. Yeah, that's my name. Uh, Micah had it before you, bro. I'm sorry. Uh, this is what Micah the prophet says. Who is a God like you? What a great question. There is none. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. There he's talking about the true Israel, the same Israel that Paul is talking about here, the remnant. I love this last verse. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. So I stole it from Micah. It's not my point. It's just Micah's point. About 100 years before me hundreds of years. You delight to show mercy. God does not stay angry to get to forever. He has poured out his anger on Christ, and now he is delighted to show mercy to anyone who would repent and call upon the name of the Lord. Yes, that means you. That means me. That means if you're watching online, God wants to show mercy to you, to me, to Israel, to Gentiles, to Africans, Asians, Russians, Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, Mexican, Canadian, Brazilian, you name a people group, and you wonder, does God want to show mercy to them? Yep. It's true. To Muslims, to Hindus, to Buddhists, to atheists, to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, to Republicans and Democrats, to the self-righteous, to the prodigals, to the LGBTQ, to those far from God, to kids and adults, no one is beyond God's mercy. No one. No one. God longs to display his mercy. Peter says it like this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Listen to this mercy. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the heart of our God. And I love how verse 32 ends. Paul summarizes and he says, God binds and allows all of us to be handed over to disobedience. Why? So that he can display his mercy to all of us. Isn't that good? This is the way Eugene Peterson says it in the message. He says it like this. God makes sure that we all experience what it means to be outside so that he can personally open the door and welcome us back in. God wants us all to feel that outsiderness so that he can just welcome us in. Come, come in. And so his own people, Israel, are now the outsiders just like we were. And now he's like, come back in, Israel. I've been waiting. I'm ready. Come in. So how do you respond to a, to a God like this? How do you respond to a God who's, who's merciful like this? You simply humbly receive the mercy of God. Humbly receive God's mercy. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart, but receive his mercy. 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. You can have forgiveness of your sins, righteousness in Christ by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, he died and rose again. You will be saved, eternally secure, today, right now. You can do that right now. And if you have received Christ's mercy, God's mercy, it should always be received humbly. Humbly. Paul warns us in verse 25, he says, I'm telling you this so that you don't get conceited or think too highly of yourselves. Well, if I believe in Jesus, I must be better than all those other people that reject him. Well, if I was a first century Jew, I would have believed in Jesus. I wouldn't have shouted crucify him. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Maybe God would have changed your heart. Maybe. But we just sang a whole song about, I once was blind and now I see. You were blind. There is nothing you did to make yourself see. God did that. If we have received God's mercy, we can be assured and confident in our salvation, but we must never, ever be arrogant about our salvation. It should not be possible to be arrogant and to understand God's mercy. Arrogance and mercy don't exist in the same category. Mercy implies humility. So we're actually going to apply this message right now, actually, in the middle of our sermon, in the middle of this service, by taking communion. We're not going to wait till the end of the message. We're actually going to do it right in the middle of it by humbly receiving uh, the communion elements. No one can take communion arrogantly. Think about this. The very cracker and the juice that you're holding in your hand. It, by, side note, ushers, if, if you didn't get one of these as you walked in, some of our ushers will kind of walk around and make sure you get one. If you need one, you can raise your hand. Or we're going to take a, a moment to think on this anyway. So ushers will be coming down. Raise your hand if you didn't get one. Uh, so the very elements that we're holding on our hands, every time you take communion, it's a reminder that the Son of God had to be slaughtered for your sins. Every time you take this, that's what you're saying. As the old hymn goes, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. His death brought me life. Jesus had to die for me to be saved. So we're going to take communion differently this morning because we want to reflect a little more. Uh, normally we do the tables, but we're going to switch it up this morning and do it in your seats because I want to encourage you to examine your heart. This is what Paul says when he's talking about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. He says this in verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, I imagine none of you want to do that. So what did Paul mean by that? Now, in the early church, in the Corinthian church at the time, and, and most churches in the ancient world, they celebrated communion by having feasts, right? The communion that we celebrate today was actually built on the Passover that the Jews celebrated. In fact, on Monday, Thursday, we're going to celebrate a Passover communion. So I'd encourage you to come to that. But you've got to register because we've got to buy a lot of stuff, right? But they, it was built on that. So they would have meals together. They would celebrate together. But what started to happen in the ancient church, especially in, in Corinth, is that they began to view themselves arrogantly or better than other people in their own church. And so the rich began oppressing the poor. The rich would get there first and would have the meal, would fellowship together, and they would leave the poor in their own church outside hungry while the rich got fat and drunk. 
Don't believe me? That's exactly what Paul says. He's condemning their actions in verse 20. He says it like this. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you're eating. It's not about Jesus. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What, I, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this matter? Certainly not. The very meal that had been about the mercy of God in Christ had become a way for some to think of themselves as better than others. And Paul says, you've missed the whole point. (laughs) You've missed the whole point. So examine yourselves, is what he's saying. You're missing it. What is communion about? He says it this way in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So before we take this communion together, I'm going to throw some questions on the screen, and they're actually in your bulletin as well. And Kevin's going to come out and kind of strum a little bit on the guitar, just because we feel weird about being quiet. And we're going to ponder these questions. Go ahead and throw those out there. Before we ever take communion, we should be willing to examine our own hearts to think, have I actually received Christ's mercy, and have I done that humbly? Have you humbly received the mercy of God? You can today through Jesus Christ. But where would I be without God's mercy? Just think about that for a minute. Where would I be without God? What would my life be like if God did not give me his mercy? Is there any arrogance in me that causes me to view others around me in my life, in my neighborhood, uh, maybe on, the, on, the, on social media as I'm better than them? God, will you humble me? So before we take the elements together in a moment, I want you to just ponder these questions for a minute or so in quietness in your heart. sometimes silence can be deafening when we just sit with God in silence and ask him to show us what's going on in our hearts. I pray we would do that often. God, what is it in me? Is there some sort of self-righteousness or arrogance that is just 
just, ugh, cleanse me, God, forgive me, change me. So let's now participate together. I would encourage you to turn over your communion cups to the side with the cracker and go ahead and tear off the top portion of that and take the cracker out. When Jesus broke this crack, the, the bread, the matzah, which is what they served at the Passover, took it out and broke it, looked at all of his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it and eat it together. You can flip your cup over to the juice side and take the top off. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, which was the third cup of the Passover. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's celebrate God's mercy in Jesus together. Father, we thank you for your mercy in Christ. Thank you that our salvation is not dependent on our own effort or energies, but it is solely a gift of your mercy and grace. We receive it humbly, we rest in you humbly, and we worship and praise you for that. We pray that all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, perhaps your hearts are already feeling stirred to praise, and that's fitting because that's exactly where Paul ends this text. He ends with one of the most powerful moments of praise in all of the Scripture. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, the heading of it probably says doxology, which means worship or glory, because this is one of the most profound worship moments in the history of Scripture. And this is what Paul writes in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be his counselor? Who has ever given to God that, they, that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Paul has been writing this masterful treatise in the book of Romans for the last 11 chapters. Beautiful theology, beautiful descriptions of God's character and his nature, our sin, creation, the law, sin, justice, death, grace, the spirit, election, predestination, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, Israel and Gentiles, and all of these beautiful information. But you can sense that he's writing all of this, and at this point he just throws down his pen, and he throws up his hands, and he's like whoa, this is huge. I can't even begin to describe how amazing and how high and mighty and powerful God's ways are. Just pondering it for 11 chapters is making my head hurt, and he's glorifying God. And through his glorification of God, I want to pull out three principles for us as we think about how we praise and worship. One, our theology should always lead us to doxology. Our theology should always lead us to doxology. 
Our theology, which is the study of God or how much we know of God, should always lead us to doxology, which is the worship of God or the glory, giving glory to God. Doxology comes from the Latin word doxa, which means glory or giving glory to God. This is why your headings have that doxology there. Because Paul has spent 11 chapters pondering theology, but he's left very humble and small at the end of chapter 11. And all he does is throw up his hands and praise. Anytime we read scripture and we study the depths of who God is, it should always lead us to worship and praise. There is something fundamentally wrong and flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not some appropriate object for cold, calculated, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. It's not that you, you can't evaluate, but you cannot study God simply in a classroom and ponder the depths of who God is without responding in worship. And if you can, something's wrong with your theology. No, the true knowledge of God should always lead us to this before him in worship. This should be the posture. When you think of who God is, you should get on your knees and fall on your face and say, whoa. I remember uh, earlier this week on Monday, I was taking my kids to school. And it was one of those days where the weather can't decide if it's cold or hot, you know, like Ohio every day. Uh, and uh, it was foggy that morning, and it was not too cold, but it wasn't hot either. And, and the sun was shining through the fog, and then all of a sudden these like giant snowflakes just started like falling really softly, so it wasn't like an annoying snow. It was like, huh, I want to catch it on my tongue, right? That kind of snow. It was amazing, and my little seven-year-old said to me, Dad, the sun looks like a spotlight. And I was like, you're right, buddy, it does. And I was like, whoa! And it was just this amazing scene. Now, I could have a conversation with you about all the scientific reasons why that happens why the temperature was just right for the conditions, why the fog, what causes fog, and why the clouds work the way they do. But that was not in my mind in that moment. All I cared about in that moment was praising God. In fact, I was walking, and then I just stopped, and I was like, oh, right? It's like, this is amazing. It was amazing. It was like literally a light was shining out of the clouds, and the snowflakes were dropping and just kind of landing on my cheeks softly. And I was like, this is incredible, and I can't I can't help myself but praise God. This is what happens when you study God. Either in his creation or in his word, as you think deeply and ponder him, you are moved and stirred to worship and praise him. This is why we sing and why we preach in services. It's why often we sing after we preach. And we're going to sing some good songs after we preach, by the way. Because our hearts are moved to respond in worship. This is also why we don't just sing. Because doxology without theology is dangerous. It's like zeal without knowledge, like Romans 9 says. We can have all sorts of great passion in worship, but if we don't have good theology to back it up, we're not worshiping rightly. For example, if I were to say to my wife, Honey, I just love your long flowing black hair and your beautiful green eyes. Some of you who don't know my wife would be like, oh, that's so sweet. Except my wife has short blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> Knowledge matters when you show affection. So if I'm going to show affection to God, I should know who I'm singing to and why I'm singing to him and who I'm singing about. Our theology matters to our doxology. 
Now, there may be some of you who are like, I got good theology, but I don't really like that whole doxology stuff. Yes, you do. Go to Saturday afternoons in the big house or in Saturday afternoons in the shoe, and what are you doing? screaming around like a little boy, jumping up around. You're worshiping. You're praising your team on the field. So it's not that you don't know how to worship. It's that maybe you don't know God well enough or you don't have a love for God that longs to worship him like that. God, may our theology lead us to doxology. And if there's something wrong with your worship, maybe you need to study God more. Because that would be compelling to your worship. Tim Keller says there should be no study of truth without worship and no worship without the study of truth. They go together. So our theology should lead us to doxology. A second principle that's really helpful for our worship is this. Let what you don't know lead you to praise the God who does know. Sometimes our words, our knowledge, our understanding falls short of the whole picture. We don't need to understand everything to praise the God who does. And I know for some of you that's really hard because you're the kind of person that needs to know all the details and you plan your trip and you need to know every second of every minute where you're going and when you're going there and how it's going to work. That's how your brain works. Let me hear you. Let me say something to you if that's you. There are going to be times in your life where you don't understand God completely. And that's okay. There will be times in your life, there are times in my life where I'm like, I don't know how this works. I know that it works, but I don't know how it works. Like the internet. I don't know how it works. I know it does. The same way with God, which is infinitely more complex. Who can know his mind and who can be his counselor, Paul says. Oh God, forgive us for all the times that we try to be your counselor. All the times where I say, well, God, if you would have just answered this prayer this way, that would have been a lot better or smarter. Beware in those moments of saying such arrogant statements. I could actually be a good counselor to God right now. Hmm. Let what you don't know lead you to praise, not to complain. I'm glad for one, I'm glad for one that I have a God whose ways are higher than my ways. Are you glad about that? Yeah. Think about it. If you had a God who you could fully comprehend and understand everything he does, he'd be a really small God, wouldn't he? Because we have really small minds. We don't know what's out there in the universe. He does. So the principle is true. There will be times in your life where you don't understand God, whether it's a complex scriptural truth or whether it's a hard time in your life or a suffering in your life. But when it does, you can still praise God. Think of Job in the middle of suffering, in the middle of losing his kids and his possessions, even his own health. This is what Job said. It's a great example for all of us. Job chapter 1, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He is still worshiping, even though he doesn't understand. So I don't have all the answers, but I'm still going to praise God. I may be sad and depressed, but I'm still going to praise God. I may be confused, but I'm still going to praise God. I may feel small, but my God is big, so I'm going to praise him. There is a God who loves you, wants to display his mercy. You don't have to know all the answers. You just have to come to him and praise him. And the last thing that Paul points out to us, not only our theology leads to doxology or that we can praise the God who does know even when we don't, lastly, the glory of God is our ultimate joy and satisfaction. 
the glory of God. In verse 36, Paul summarizes all of life, the point of our existence, the point of the universe, the point of salvation, the point of every breath that you breathe on this green earth. He summarizes it in one sentence. So you want to know why you exist and why life exists and why there's a universe? Here it is. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's it. From him. All of life comes from God. He is the creator and sustainer. You and I were specially created in his image and for his purposes to reflect him. James 1.17 says that all good things, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. He is generous. No one gives like him. No one can give him back to be, to be repaid. He is the fount of every blessing from him. And through him, all things are made and sustained by the word of his power. That means that there is not one star or one galaxy in existence today that, that is not being held together by the word of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.16. And it is only through Christ that the way, the truth, and the life that we have salvation and eternal life. There is no condemnation through him and for him. It is all for him. God created this world, this universe, for his glory. The heavens declare his glory. The earth declares his handiwork. The reason why the universe is so big is because you're not at the center of it. God is. It's an infinite, eternal universe, expanding, massive universe, because we have an infinite and massive God. It's for him, not for you. For you to enjoy, but not for your glory, for his. We are saved for his glory, and our ultimate joy and satisfaction is only found in him alone. This is why you love to get lost, and I love to get lost in big things, like that, that scene of the fog and the snow and the sun. Like, I, I didn't care. It, it, was, it made me feel so small, and I loved it. It's why you go to mountain ranges. It's why you go to national parks. It's why do you go to beaches or sunsets and sunrises, because we like to feel small in the presence of bigness. That's why you were created, to stand in the presence of the greatness of God and to behold it. So every time you see that in creation, it's just a little window into the purpose of why you're here, to make yourself small so that you could glorify the big, glorious God. The Westminster Confession says it this way, men and women many years ago, wrote this down, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The secret to true joy and happiness in your life is not pleasant circumstances, not in a perfect job or a perfect spouse or perfect children. It's not in your health or wealth or possessions. It's not even in great experiences like travel and vacation, which you all did a few weeks ago, or in graduation or promotions, all of these things pass away. No, the secret to joy and happiness is finding something that won't pass away, namely the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And hear me, listen, the devil hates the glory of God, hates it, doesn't want you to see it, doesn't want you to know it, doesn't want you to know what the secret to happiness is. He wants you to find it somewhere else. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this age, the devil, 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, not about us, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Oh, church, I pray this often for myself that God would open my eyes, and that God would open your eyes, that God would open all of our eyes to see the reality of his beauty and his glory in all the universe and the world and the earth. It is the one thing that will truly make us happy so that we could say a prayer like Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple, that's what I want. That's what I want to see, to gaze upon his beauty. And so whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I do it all for the glory of God. And whatever I do in word and deed, I do it all for the glory of God, Colossians 3, 17. And so I long to see and I pray, Habakkuk 2, 4, that for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what I want. And really, that's what you want. That is our deepest desire, is that the, the world, the earth, would be filled with the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters would cover the sea. So, God delights in showing mercy to us. Praise God for that. And we have pondered him and thought a lot about theology, but now we're going to let that theology move us to doxology. We're going to praise. We're going to sing. We don't have to understand everything. Don't have all, have all the dots crossed and to, uh, dots dotted and T's crossed. That's the word. But we know that it's good for us, that God's glory is what we long for. And so I'm going to close by reading the very text that we just studied as a prayer. And then the worship band is going to lead us. Romans 11. I want you to just close your eyes. Just listen to this as a prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge that you have, God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your paths beyond tracing out. We can't find them. Who has known your mind, Lord? Who can be your counselor? Who has ever given back to you, God, that you should repay them? From you, and through you, and for you are all things. To you, O oh God, be the glory forever and ever.